Hey guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with an interview with Danny Blanchflower. He is an economist from uh, Dartmouth University and has many accolades to his uh, name, including a former governor of the Bank of England. So um, really uh, pleased and honored to uh, have him here with us. So Danny, thanks for taking the sure. time to uh, chat today. Sure, of course. So tell us a little bit about your background. What, what are some of the things that you've done in life in terms of the economics profession and got you to where you are today? Well, I, uh, I grew up and, and was educated in the UK. And in 1989, I left because the payment of economists was so low and my in, the interest rate had risen to 14% and my academic salary was equal to my mortgage payment. And I thought, this isn't gonna work. And so I went to look in the job market around the world and the president of Dartmouth called me up one day and said, Danny, I'm going to quadruple your salary and quadruple the size of your house. I always look back and think I should have said five, but I didn't. <laughs> so, so I came into Dartmouth in 89 and I worked on wages, unemployment, comparisons across countries um, and did lots of that kind of stuff. And then the big deal, I guess, later was in 2006, Gordon Brown asked me to join the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England. And they told me, Danny, but you should understand that central banking is boring. Well, it turns out most things that Gordon Brown says are true. That wasn't one of them. Um, and uh, on the Bank of England, I was, a, uh, I was famous for talking about what I call the economics of walking about and predicting that the recession had come a year ahead of everybody else. I kept saying a recession was coming. And I made speeches all through 2008 early on saying the US had gone into recession, the UK had gone into recession, and everybody else kept saying Blanche was an idiot. Well, it turned out that wasn't the case. And so that, that was a big deal. And it was about trying to look at what happened in America, what happened when, um, um, when, the, when there are a big, financial, a big financial market shock. And then subsequent to that, I've done a lot of work on what I call the economics of walking about, which is what people say, take it seriously, think about what they say about their lives. I've done a lot of work on happiness. And, and recently, a lot of the work has been about U-shapes in happiness. I know we're going to talk about it. But it's also been about trying to understand how the world works. And I think economics and policymakers especially have been absolutely terrible in with this. I mean, to understand that um, economists go back to the Great Recession, missed the Great Recession. They got the recovery wrong, thought that austerity was going to work, and it didn't. And I think really the big story in the last five years is that um, people were mistaken about the state of the labor market, which is why I'm a labor economist. And my view is that the labor market was nowhere near full employment. Mm -hmm. And the central bank in the United States raised rates numerous times on the, on the expectation that the economy was in full employment. And that turns out to be a huge mistake. And by December 2018, they were predicting three rate rises in 2019, four in 2020. And they had to completely reverse themselves. And that weakened economies around the world through early part of 2020. So when the pandemic hit, the, the consequence was that the economy was not prepared because there'd been a huge set of errors. And so I think economics and policymakers have to take a great deal of blame um, for why they missed it. I mean, the, you know, the, the governors of central banks by September 2008, a week ahead of the failure of Lehman Brothers still hadn't worked out that the economies were in, were in recession. So I'm very critical of, of economics. I don't think it makes it really understands the real world. And 95% of the people in economics, as far as I can tell, aren't actually interested in the real world. They're interested in publishing papers in economics journals. Well, isn't, isn't it a, a running joke in social science that uh, economics was created in order to make weathermen look good? Well, I think that's true. And I think it was also created as a place for third rate mathematicians to come mm. and try and do, I mean, third rate math, they weren't good enough to be in mathematics. And so, yeah, you're, you're completely right that the forecasts have been completely terrible. I mean, um, and, that, and that's a real problem. I mean, if you, if, as I say, go back to August 2008 and look at what central banks were saying that, you know, everything was going to be fine. I mean, the, the, the reality is that it's a little bit different to weather forecasting in the sense that the weather forecaster doesn't influence the weather. Yeah. <laughs> and the problem with an economics forecaster is that if the central bank says X, this may well have an effect upon the markets and on the outcomes. 
And so that, that is tough, but I think in a sense, what's the, another analogy to it? And that's probably about epidemiology and the epidemiologists have had a pretty hard time trying to, trying to model this, the flow of this pandemic. So, mm. so forecasting is tough, especially when it's about forecasting the future. Mm. <laughs> one, of the, uh, one of the things that uh, brought us together in uh, the more uh, recent fashion is uh, your criticism of the uh, economics Nobel Prize. Uh, a couple of guys were given the Nobel Prize basically for uh, researching auctions. And uh, your criticism was there's, there's more important things to look at. Well, I mean, a subject like economics has a relatively young Nobel Prize. It's different because it's funded by the, by the Swedish Central Bank. And at some point, you know, you, 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 you obviously when things starts out, you have to give prizes to the people who built building blocks. But um, in the end, you have, to reserve, you have to give it to people who have actually found something, found something out about the real world and actually improve the well-being of the population. Think of the prize in medicine and in you know, the, the, the number of people whose lives have been saved is a pretty good indicator. So these folks got a prize um, for, for, for working on auctions. Three other Nobel Prize have been given that before. And when asked about how many auctions and they could name auctions they went to, one of the prize winners said he couldn't, didn't actually involve himself with auctions, but thinks he'd been on eBay to buy a pair of ski boots. Hmm. Well, okay, so we, 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 we developed some auctions. Well, the Romans had auctions for slaves. Um, we had slave auctions in, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina for decades. And the issue is, okay, yeah, they used this auction to sell off something. Well, okay, but what was the alternative? There were lots of other possible auctions they could have used. What, what do we know that they, how they actually improved the well-being of the, in Britain, we would say the man or woman on the Clapham omnibus. And it's unclear to me that that is the case. We should be giving Nobel Prizes to people who found something and significantly improve the well-being of the population. It's not good enough to say they found something and it had some, some positive benefit. Well, yeah, okay, fine. But let's, let's try and give it to people who really transformed the world, found something and improve, improve people's well-being. Um, and what, we do, what we've done in economics is we've revo- rewarded people who wrote squiggles on diggles. And mm-hmm. as far as I can see, completely worthless. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me as... As uh, you know, I'm a financial advisor and and uh, <laughs> observer of what what's going on, but it looks to me like we're in completely uncharted territory from a an economic standpoint. I mean, if you would have talked to somebody, literally, if people were talking about uh, uh, MMT, modern monetary theory, a year ago, you were laughed out of the room. And come COVID, it's like everybody is full blast MMT. And right. Well, I do I do yeah, I do think that in a sense we we've gone to a world that's unthinkable. But why is it unthinkable? Um, people should have been thinking better. Um, it's it that seems to me. I mean, think about what central banks can do and whether rates can go negative and you know how much you coordinate fiscal and monetary policy. I mean, in essence, what you need are to, for people to focus on big issues. I am actually really encouraged that if you look at what post-COVID, you look at how many economists and social scientists and others who've gone to think about COVID and thought about what has happened, it's actually a really good sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, transform, it's transforming the profession and it's leaving behind. I mean, if you think, what, what is the Nobel Prize folks who just won this prize? Mm-hmm. What have they had to say about the crisis that has been hit? in 2020 and the answer is absolutely nothing and so i think you're right that we needed to start to think about the lots of questions about what ifs and how you deal with this with this great pandemic and the way that i've done it in my research is to if you go and talk to people about what they say and think and actually that's what's happened so if you look at the 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 authorities have now realized the old methods that they have were no good so the so the census bureau is running household pulse surveys every week or so trying to take notes of how people are feeling about their, how anxious they are, how depressed they are, are they, are they able to get food? The Office of National Statistics in the UK is having to do those kinds of things, transforming what it did. I mean, a good example is in the US, the Bureau of Labor Statistics discovers in, in April, March and April 2020, that their measure of unemployment is actually five percentage points 
below what it really is. But in the past, they've never made an adjustment. So they don't adjust. Well, why not? The, they say the unemployment rate is 14.7%. But in a footnote, they say, well, actually, it's 19.7%. Well, okay, guys, you know, your old rules didn't apply. The answer is it's 19.7%. It's not 14.7%. So it's about being adaptable and flexible and thinking about what you do when a shock hits. Hopefully, this will transform the profession. But if you look back, what, what did those folks have to say about this crisis? If the answer is nothing, that's, that says a lot. So what, what masks the unemployment number to such a degree that it is so far off base from the actual right. reality of people's right. lives? Right. So the first thing, well, there's two things to it. The first is that just in the terms of the count since March, in, in the US, people, the, the, were, the interviewers went out there, um, pe people were self-reporting. And the big, big issue was, I'm out of work. Uh, I'm unable to work for other reasons. Um, those people reported themselves as being employed, but they were actually unemployed. Mm. And so criteria for unemployed. So they should have been classified as unemployed, but they classified themselves as employed. So you make an error. We know you make an error. Presumably what the Bureau of Labor Statistics would do is correct the error. And they didn't. Second, most importantly, um, I've, I've probably done more work on this than anybody. Prior to 2008, the, the best indicator you had of what happens in the labor market was the unemployment rate. You didn't need to look at anything else. Everything else tracked it. And I, used in, I started out my career in the 80s in England at the London School of Economics. We would go every week to talk about the, to the unemployment seminar. And you didn't look, need to look at anything else. Everything followed it. Post-2008, turns out that's not an adequate indicator because, yes, the unemployment rate fell below the level it had been before the recession, but the employment rate was two and a half percentage points below where it was. And the big indicator that I've looked at is the underemployment rate, which is, okay, the unemployment rate is really, really low, but people are in jobs where they can't get enough hours of work. Yeah. And the phenomenon that economics has not been able to explain was why is wage growth so weak if you think that the economy is in full employment? And for a decade, I have been arguing that's just nonsense. If the economy is not at full employment, if it was, wage growth would be higher. And so what you now have are lots of other indicators that tell you that people are hurting. So you have this the economic saying we're at full employment, which means everything's wonderful. And a lot of my work said, well, that's just crass nonsense. Wage growth is far below what we would have predicted at full employment. And the other big deal is that people are hurting and economists, you missed it. You missed that people were hurting. You missed that despair and distress and so on, especially focused on the prime age was rising. And you kept telling everybody how great it was. Well, it wasn't. And you end up in Britain and in France and in America, a rise of populism because these people were hurting. Think of the contrast. You say, everything's great, we're at full employment, so we've got to stop wages exploding. And the real world out there says, you're full of nonsense. We're, we're, we're really hurting. A lot of my work's about that. So there's the disconnect. The economics profession doing squiggles on diggles and all these people really hurting. Case and Deaton have documented rising deaths of despair. I've documented lots of despair going on. Well, where's economics? Nowhere. Hmm. What, uh, one of the uh, trends that I've seen over the past number of years is a lot of corporations have actually changed people from full-time employees mm -hmm. to actually contractors, mm -hmm. something which allows them Correct. to basically get rid of benefits, um, yep. get rid yep. of their health insurance, their disability, yep. life insurance, their retirement plans. And in addition, it makes them uh, able to cut people without looking like they're cutting people. Right. So, that's a, um, yeah, that, 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 can I answer that? I mean, that's a yeah. great point. I mean, I mean a lot that, of, one of those the other, people, I would think, normally don't show up in a lot of these right. things. So let's, so let's say why that's so important. A lot of my work actually has also been on self-employment. And one of my most well-known papers has a great title. If you're going to be an academic, get great titles. And this <laughs> is a paper called What Makes an Entrepreneur, which is a really good title. Um, but here, here's, the, here's the, the thrust of it. And I completely agree with that. And so self-employment has... I mean, Think of those people as self-employed, they're not an employee. So I think this, is, this, this probably says where we are. Prior to 2008, the world were impacted by profits of firms, we'll ignore that for a minute, and the unemployment rate. So I'd say that the 
wages were set at the external margins, your pay was kept down because of the possibility of some unknown person out there replacing you. That's what's called Marx's reserve army of the unemployed. A big part of the work that I've done exactly faces what you've said, which is that now all of a sudden, wages are being impacted at the internal margins. So it, think about, I mean, I, and I learned this once, the very first I'd learned of this, a, a big German employer when I was on the NPC called me up and said, we want to come and talk to you about exactly what you said. So come to our plant. So I went to their plant and there were two production lines over here and a third one over there. And the guy said to me, so these are all the workers that we have. And we had a problem with the production line and it fell. So we hired a thousand poles, temporary workers working over here. He said, these poles, are, and Britain had a big influx of poles. These workers over here, the kind that you said, they're self-employed people. They're fantastic. He said that 8.30 in the morning, just before the, the, the shift starts, they're all in the parking lot, all ready to go. They're never, they're never late. And I said, well, tell me about these guys. And he said, well, they're paid less than the guys over there. And I said, well, tell me about the next pay round. And he said, there isn't one. I said, why is that? And he said, because the guys over there know that the guys over there are better and can replace them. So actually what you have, not only what you said is true, but it's also true that people within the workplace know those people. So the pay of those people within the workplace is keeping the pay of people in the same workplace down. Because they're a fear of losing their because own Because they're job. a fear. And so do you understand? I mean, in a sense, yeah. that, in a sense, what you've just said means that my pay is impacted by the pay of people I know. <laughs> right? I mean, right? So if you think of it, they're in the same workplaces where people are not part-time, but, but, but there's the rub. And, and I can show you that empirically. So post-2008, wages are impacted by the underemployment rate, not the unemployment rate. Mm. So that trend, in a sense, that trend of instability within a workplace, I mean, that, that factory was, you know, there were all these, a thousand of these workers and 2000 employees and their wages weren't going anywhere because the firm mm. knew that they could fire a lot of them and replace them with these guys over here who were better. So, but that instability is part of it. That's a great instability that we're seeing. And people, people, in a sense, reason wages aren't rising is people are concerned about keeping their jobs. They're concerned about security. And they say, okay, I'll give up on the wage thing, but I'm, I just want to keep this job because it sits and fits with my world. And there's the explanation of why wage growth has been weak. And because of that, um, the, the call by the Fed to raise rates between 2015 and 2018 was entirely wrong, didn't understand the workers of the labor market, were completely out of touch. And probably the reason they were out of touch was because they didn't walk around the country. They, yeah. they were walking in the streets of New York and San Francisco and Chicago and- Or in the boardrooms. But they weren't in the boardrooms, but they weren't walking around in the, in the rural areas in Mississippi and Alabama and Missouri and North Dakota and South Dakota. And, you know, and they missed what was going on in the real world. So, I, so in my call for trying to understand real world economics is trying to understand what people say and do. And, and, that's, and that's what now, all these, all these, all these census bureau and everybody else is having to do because it's all moving so fast. What happened last week? And they're trying to work out, you know, what what, what do people feel? How, I mean, how do you know about? Suddenly, you say, "Are you more lonely than you were?" How are you going to find that out? You're going to have yeah. to have to go and scrap everything you did and start again. Well, where's economics? Well, fortunately, I mean, in medicine, in in health economics, people are on the case, and I think that's a really it's a really big change. And if people are not stopped working on auctions and starting to work on, you know, the impact, the relationship between the pandemic and the economy, that's going to, that's going to help go back to my man or woman on the Clapham omnibus. What is it? Clapham's an area of London. It was the old, initially the bus drawn by the horse. And, you know, we understand it. It's the normal, I mean, it's man or woman on the, you know, who sits in Missouri. Gotcha. So um, one of the, uh, one of the other uh, drivers, it seems to me, and I'm curious how this fits into your economics of walking around is uh, AI and what that is doing to labor in terms of people's need for higher education in order to be economically relevant. Right. I mean, it seems to me that there's a real gap in terms of how people are educated and trained to be able to survive financially in a world where AI is so prominent. Um, which is where we're moving to. And if anything, COVID has accelerated. Right. And where we're right. at now with with a large part, portion of the population, it seems like a large portion of this population is is 
out of the economy because they just don't have the skill set. Well, yeah, obviously we, one of the big deals is about inequality, right? It's about mm -hmm. inequality uh, that we see. I mean, central banks come in and, 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 and buy assets and that helps asset holders. But what about people who don't hold assets? Secondly, in the pandemic, what we have are people like me who are teaching at home and we're, we're teaching remotely. And the issue is, well, what about people who can't? And, and they're the ones being impacted and hit and hurt by, by the pandemic. But I, I would say something that I, so people always come to me and say, what are you, where are all the new jobs going to come from? Where, where, where's the world going to go? And I say, I have no bloody clue. And if you go back for the last 50 years and you sit me down, when you sat me down in 1980, when I was first doing my PhD, where in 30 years time would the jobs have come from? And you keep doing that. And the answer is, I have no idea. I mean, I would have had absolutely no idea that it was going to be, you know, cell phones and laptops and all of that. And so the first thing is that the first thing is that we don't know where those things are coming from. Secondly, technology. I mean, the Luddites were worried about technology. One of the big things, if you look in the mainstream, I mean, look at what we're doing. We're talking on Zoom. We're doing. I mean, the, it turns out that there's a huge amount of jobs that have been created because of the technology, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it just it's changed. There's no longer a VHS video store, but there's lots of other things, right? Um, and there's Netflix and there's all sorts of things. So that's the first thing. Obviously, secondly, we need to try and help people. So think about the central parts of America. The left behinds there, they don't have good Wi-Fi service. They don't have good cell phone service. So they have been left behind. But the one thing I would actually argue is that the, the move to technology is about relative prices. So the reason technology is worth, is worth having is because its relative price is lower than the price of labor. Well, a policy that, send, that governments can do is they can lower the price of labor. They can subsidize labor to firms. And so, yeah, you're right that we need to try and get people more educated and help uh, improve the infrastructure. But actually, if you subsidize and lower the price of labor, then capital labor substitutions are different. I mean, think of you know, almost any job, it's about relative prices and technology is gonna wipe out jobs if the price of technology is lower than the price of work. And so the earned income tax credit and subsidies to firms to hire people, all of that stuff lowers the relative prices. So I'm not, I'm not as negative as people are about you know, productivity and the use of technology because it opens up new things. I mean, Biden's argued, yeah, you, you know, on the one hand, you worry about you know, what are you going to do about fracking? But if you're going to do that, you're going to start to replace it by millions of people working on solar panels and windmills and insulating houses and all of that stuff. So it's not obvious that the one kind of technology, I mean, think of there were, there were millions of people in 1900 employed with horses and making leather and whips and carts and all the rest of it. And okay, the, the car came in. You didn't say, well, we're going, we're going to keep the horses going. I mean, it's the, there was a readjustment and people started to become mechanics and you had to train them. So mm -hmm. it's about adjustment and trying to understand and deal with and deal with change. But again, where's economics? We have to think about dealing with change and, and using artificial intelligence and stuff to lift people. But the gap has broadened and that's why, that's why we have issues with people being unhappy because they've been left behind. Yeah, I mean, Janet Yellen, for all the uh, criticism that she gets uh, heaped on her, for years when she was chair of the Fed, was giving speeches on the need for improved education of workers and improved education of the workforce. Janet Yellen. This is government policy. This is. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, she, Janet, bless her heart, we don't know very well, and I think she's fantastic. Um, I mean, Janet was a professor of labor economics, married to a Nobel Prize winner who's a professor of economics as well. Janet was very aware and was concerned about um, inequality. I mean, if, in a sense, if you use, I mean, and now what we're seeing, Larry Summers is saying, I think I've been saying it, governors of central banks around the world are saying, if you push everything onto monetary policy, that's, you can't do that because monetary policy is sort of a one size fits all. So in the UK, I used to argue to people, well, the problem is you set one interest rate, right? And so maybe what's going on is the interest rate is too low in London and it's too high in the north of England. And so what's happened is giving, putting everything, all your, bas all your eggs into the basket of monetary policy um, is, is too much. And now we're at the point where the, they just don't have the tools to help, hence the requirement A for fiscal policy, but it's, it's gonna be fiscal policy to help 
well, think of it just simply as regions. You might think regional policy is something you might really be concerned about. And then you might be concerned about the left behinds or a minority group or whatever. Um, but monetary policy can't do that. And Janet was very mindful uh, and tried to think about inequality and the effects. But basically, you got what you got. Mm. As somebody with uh, central bank experience, I'm curious, um, you know, it seems to me that quantitative easing is actually deflationary, that it, it seems to be, you know, asset prices in some, some respects are skyrocketing, but the economy overall is actually seems to be deflating and hurting economic growth. Like, how do you explain quantitative easing and is, is quantitative easing actually a good thing for well, the overall economy? I don't economy, agree with what you said. I, I don't agree with what you said. So here's, here's the thing. I mean, I'm one of the people in the world who actually voted for quantitative easing. So let me, you know, I think I voted for $200 billion. You know, I mean, I used to think that was a big number, but anyway, let me just go with this. So the reality, so if you have in the back of your head, which may alter the way you thought and the way I thought, I have in my head, that there's been a giant deflationary shock. And the giant deflationary shock, which has come from a financial crisis, has continued. The comment you made is the difference between you and me is you've underestimated the scale of the deflationary shock. When we got to 2008 in the fall, our models were telling us that interest rates had to be perhaps minus 5%. And so obviously there was an issue, how low can you go? We, we were told basically in Britain that the interest rate couldn't go below a half. There are technical reasons for that. And so the argument was, well, if you can't lower the price of money, you have to raise the quantity of money. And obviously, the, so then off you go and you do quantitative easing. And there, there was never really anything to tell us what you should buy. So, okay, you start out in the, I mean, in the US, the Fed is limited by what the Congress tells it. It tells it it can buy three things, treasuries, um, mortgage-backed securities, and short-run municipal bonds. Uh, the Bank of England, there was no such constraint, and they bought wider things as they have elsewhere. Um, the reality is that, yes, quantitative easing has gone ahead. The problem is that this deflationary shock, oftentimes, they say in the UK, made, made much worse by inane policies of a government that thought that the libraries were the ones that caused the Great Recession, so now we have to close them. Mm. So there's a giant deflationary shock going on. The central bank is trying to counter bad economics on the fiscal front, and it can only do so much. And that's hence the cause for fiscal help. But I think the scale of the deflationary shock was much greater than you think, than, than perhaps you suggested in your question. And the counterfactual is actually the difference perhaps between what you said and what I think. I think the counterfactual was much, much, much worse. I mean, Ben Bernanke said it right. He was asked when he just, when he came, it was an interview he did in 60 Minutes, and they asked him, um, Chairman Bernanke, what do you think would have happened if the central bank hadn't stepped in, hadn't cut interest rates to zero, and hadn't done quantitative easing? And he said the unemployment rate would have been 25%, and I agree with that. Hmm. So it's just, it's just so think when you say things ain't great. Well, the problem is that they're out of a lot better because of quantitative easing than they would have been. I just have in my head, we would have had 25% unemployment, and we didn't. Okay, we had lots of things bad, but so would you, go, would you go so far as to say that quantitative easing actually encourages growth? Absolutely, because it's intended, it's intense. So why did we do it? Its intention was, so the way I try to explain it to my students is, think of, think of a thousand Warren Buffetts. <laughs> so you come into the market, you buy in the market, it's a huge buyer comes into the market. The idea is that this encourages risk taking, it encourages, it lifts people compared to where they were before, and it encourages growth. And so it certainly looks that it's had positive impacts on GDP. The problem has been that in the US until recently, the Fed was limited in what it could do. It bought short and then it had to go and buy longer and do Operation Twist and so on. The Bank of England has bought uh, corporate bonds, but look around the world where you know, the Bank of Japan has bought ETFs and you know, bought all sorts of stuff. So I, I would put it on the, actually the economics uh, for your listeners, this is quite a shock, perhaps. I remember sitting thinking in the fall of 2008 and discussing what could a central bank buy as part of quantitative easing? And the answer is anything. Anything, right? So it could buy, I mean, the government's just issued in the UK this week, 
was issued a green bond. It could, it could buy a green bond, it could buy student loans, it could buy buildings, it could buy houses, it could buy anything, it could buy oil. I mean, there's no reason quantities shouldn't do that. I mean, there are political implications of, you know, should you do it? Is it unmandated fiscal? But in principle, central banks could buy anything. So the issue is, have they bought the wrong stuff? And have they just not done enough of it? And I would argue they've probably not done enough of it. But the problem has been that, they, that they've been up three steps and down two because of, I mean, in the UK, as an example, UK government came in in, in June 2010 imposed um, austerity despite all the things the central bank was doing you ended up with the slowest recovery in 300 years the, the only two before it that were slower were after the south sea bubble and the black death so you you well what can the central bank do when you have lunatics who have no idea about fiscal policy and think that cutting public spending in a recession will help private spending well the mm -hmm. nonsense and the government, the, the, the government of the Bank of England supported it, the one who missed, who missed the Great Recession and supported austerity. And it was a complete disaster. Yeah. I mean, probably the worst government of the Bank of England, well, certainly since Montague Norman, but probably the worst ever. Hmm. Missed, missed the Great Recession because he was too interested in some squiggle. Nonsense. One of the, uh, one of the things we see a lot of, um, even before COVID, was uh, in the uh, U.S. economy were, are basically zombie companies, companies that right. are carrying a lot of debt, excessive debt, aren't making enough money to pay their bills and are basically living off, um, living off of credit. Um, they're not really financially solvent in a, they're not growing. They're not growing and they're not positive uh, economic contributors. And that number's only grown. I think we're at all, over 20% of companies are zombie companies at this point. And it seems like a lot of the solution has been to throw more debt onto, right. onto companies. Uh, how, do you, how do you get back to an economy that actually gets to growth and productivity? Well, I mean, I mean the problem has always been, I mean, I, I've always thought about this zombie company argument. I mean, in a way you'd like, you sort of say, well, I'd like to wipe these zombie companies out and then that would allow good ones to reemerge. Well, the problem very often is that you kill off the zombies and you kill off the non-zombies. So that's the problem. I mean, think about what, in a sense what we're doing now. I mean, the argument in the UK is very much that right now, which is that the Chancellor of the Exchequer has a program in place to help firms see themselves through this crisis and he's had to keep extending it and obviously some of those firms are never going to survive and and that's you know that you might think of that as a sort of darwinism amongst firms but the problem is that it brings everybody else down with them mm. and so in a sense the arguments that i've made are very much consistent with what you said which is that you know we we need to get back to normality we need to get we need to somehow or other i mean hard to do it under covid but we need to get monetary policy back we need to get monetary policy back to normal so that rates are at five, so that when the bad shock comes, you can cut them by five. And that depends upon the fiscal folks who've been, you know, I mean, what have we learned from all the stuff? We've learned that actually the idea of having small government has been a disaster. Um, the, 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 what we need is it, we need to have economies set up so that they can deal with a pandemic shock that's coming. Um, so I think the argument about zombie companies is fine, but in a sense, that's, they've been propped up by the low, the low debt. Yeah. But in a sense, the, the job that you're in, that you, you're, people's jobs, I mean, there are perfectly zombie companies with perfectly sensible good people in them. You allow the zombie companies to, to, to die at the point of when unemployment's at 25%, you're going to get unemployment to 45%. So the consequences of keeping the zombies going is much better than the, than the reality of not letting them go when there's no, no demand in the economy. So, but so that, I think does that, that then ex like lengthen the period of, yes, of stagnation? Course. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, the, the period of stagnation has come because of the scale of the shock. It's a financial market shock. Think of the last one we had was in 1929. We generated the 30s. And you had these economists and policymakers saying we should cut back on a step. We should do austerity. So mm. the answer is that any, any government who said we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be Keynes, we shouldn't be exploding spending, has caused this yeah and, and that's what's caused it it's prevented us getting back to normal 
So the Republicans who said, you know, we've got to cut back spending, the Tory party in the UK, they caused this because they got it wrong. Uh, and Keynes told us what to do in the depths of a recession, which is spend your way out of it. And then once you get to normal, you back off. Um, the public sector takes a role in the recession and then it steps back. And so what we've had are nonsense. I keep saying that. I mean, it's just as a central bank, there's only so much that you can do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What uh, you mentioned your paper on uh, happiness. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like uh, what yeah. is, what is, well, um, what was your finding as far as who's the most happiest? And, yeah, yeah. And well, let's just start. I mean, the, the starting point I've actually done a lot on, well, the, the stuff particularly in the, in, in the Great Recession was, in fact, you can ask firms. So you can ask about how firms are doing. You can think of that as well-being of firms. Firms actually were, re if you talk to firms early in 2008, they gave you a really good indicator of what was coming. So the economics of walking about is about talking to firms, asking them, you know, what's going to happen to your, to, to the, to your product? What's, what do you think is coming? Are you going to lay people off? Are you, what are you, the confidence that you have is the first part. The other part is to talk to consumers about what they see, where, you know, do you think there's unemployment coming? A lot of this is about talking to people, listening to what they say and taking it seriously. But over the years, really since the early 2000s, I've been interested in happiness because in a sense, as a central banker, you, you don't per se care about GDP or inflation or unemployment, right? Per se, you don't care about it. You care about people's well-being, how, how they're doing. So I got kind of interested in that. And I, was I got interested in, you know, to what extent does unemployment make people unhappy and what extent inflation does. And it turns out, and I've worked on, a one percentage point change in unemployment is five times worse than a one percentage point change in inflation first. Mm. And then secondly, what are the big impacts that, have, that, that, that impact people's well-being? And the answer is unemployment is a really big one. The argument that people are just lazy, that the unemployed are voluntary, is nonsense because it's one of the biggest things to lowering people's happiness. If you go to a job, from a job to unemployment, that lowers your happiness horribly. Um, and so that's the first thing. And then the other thing, which we talked about a bit at the beginning, is now we have, I have lots of evidence now that there is a midlife crisis, that happiness is U-shaped in age, which is really interesting because psychologists in many senses have denied it, but it's kind of interesting because the data completely, um, completely dominates that, that claim. Um, and an example, well, just two examples in the last month. We have data just come from the United States on deaths from cocaine poisoning. And that turns out to maximize in prime age. And then the same week in the UK, We've had data for um, deaths from um, overdoses, drug poisoning, and that also maximizes in mid-age. And then thirdly, there's great work by uh, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, the Nobel Prize winner, on deaths of despair, showing that deaths from suicide, drug poisoning, and alcohol poisoning you know, are, are, are um, in, in peak in prime age. And that's entirely consistent with the work that we've been doing, which is about the U-shaping age. And the great worry, and this is really interesting in political sense, the group that really matters here are prime age, less educated whites. And they, and the deaths of despair and work that I've done on the despair associated with them is a major issue, largely ignored by economics. And those are the same people who voted for Trump, who voted for Brexit, who feel left behind. And so that work seems pretty important. Um, and, 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 and obviously concerning. Um, I, I'm happy to talk as well about the new work I've been doing on despair, which perhaps your listeners should, should hear about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, so how do, you, how do you reverse that, that course? Like what, what specifically is, is causing the, the, the decline yeah. in terms of happiness? Is it, well, is it this expectation of debt and, and yeah, well, putting it's kids hard. Let, let me, let me, let me, let me try Let me try it. Right. Let me try with you. Um, the, the, fir the first thing it seems is that, um, so, so let, let me set this up. So we're interested in, so we have data now from the CDC um, about, on about 8 million people where they were asked over the last 30 days, how many of those 30 days were bad mental health days? About two thirds of the sample say zero. Most people say between zero and two. Well, it turns out that there's a huge chunk of people who say 30. And if you go to my group, which is prime age, 
less educated whites. In 2019, one in eight said that. One in eight said, every day of my life is a bad mental health day. Mm. But it turns out one of the things we also find is that declines in manufacturing um, um, have had a big impact on them. Those folks, their parents and their grandparents had good jobs. They were in the steel sector, they were in coal, they were in manufacturing, they were in car plants. So the, the comparison to their past is a big deal, a comparison to what other people are doing. But in a sense, what's really interesting in my data is that none of that applies to whites with a college education and none of it applies to non-whites with or without a college education. So this is a, this is a less educated whites who, mm. who fundamentally are, are, the, are the Trump voter group. Um, so what you have to do is you have to, in a sense, go to them, focus on trying to improve the well, their well-being, their lot, put in infrastructure. I mean, an example that, that, that actually I have my, my not working book, an example is um, one of the big things in life is that if you have an accident, say you have a car accident, if you arrive at a hospital with a primary care unit with a, uh, and you're alive, there's about a 92% or so probability you'll survive. Well, in rural areas, there's no close hospital by, nearby. They don't wear seatbelts. And so a car accident that would, people's lives would be saved in San Francisco and in Los Angeles isn't in rural areas. So you've got to try and deal with these left behind issues because truly they're left behind and people have not moved from them. I mean, we try to understand why people not moved out of these places. And the answer is they say, because I'm from here. So we've got to do something about- So is, is the core problem the comparison of how they, how they yes. see themselves having done compared yes. to their parents yes. and the expectation right. of what is being prevented from them being able to yeah, I think participate. So. I mean, I think so. I mean, I think what we've learned is relative things matter. I mean, yeah. it may be that it matters more when you're on Facebook and you can see, I mean, you can see what I'm, I mean, in some ways where we're at is that you vote for something, you say, you know, Blanchfire's doing absolutely fine. I'm doing horrible. I'll feel better, even if it doesn't make me feel better. If Blanchfire feels worse, that makes me feel better. Well, that, that somehow or other, we have to kick that. Mm -hmm. And we have to, this, this great divide between the haves and the have-nots and the rise in inequality and the, mm -hmm. the growth of the left-behinds. I mean, in some sense, think about uh, Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake. You know, you could say let them eat cake, but it didn't work out that well for her. Well, there was a, there was a, uh, a Fed official that said, uh, you know, just give them iPads, like let them eat iPads. And uh, this was a couple of years ago. Well, no, exactly. Like, but, that, but, yeah. there's, but there's the... They go back and yes, we're at full employment and all is fine. And the worry is that wage growth is going to take place. Well, if you think of it, I actually think it's a really nice idea that you get to full employment and wages start to take off. Yeah. And who are wages going to take off the most for? These people. These yeah. people are suddenly going to start to get off a job. So the Fed says the last thing we must allow is the possibility that wage growth in southern Missouri will pick up and that in the, the economy will bounce. I mean, in a sense, it deals with your zombie problem, right? Because yeah, yeah. suddenly demand's rising, everybody's doing good things, the good firms are coming in, and the good firms are going to take over, and the bad firms are, you know, people are going to move from the bad firms to the good firms because there's such a shortage of labor. That's how to kill the zombies off. Yeah. Yeah. You create lots of incentives, right? Well, if you have wage terrible. growth, you have more yeah. money in the economy. More you money in the economy. economy. Right. And the only way you're going to get good workers is attract them from bad places. So yeah. the good firms are going to attract the, place, the firms from the bad places. And that kills the bad places off because the good ones benefit. So this fear that somehow or other we're going to get to full employment, where actually at full employment, who benefits the most at full employment? These people. These people. And so, I mean, I, I, I'm very struck. I've used this. I've used this book a lot, which is, so here's, here's the great analogy. This, I have a book in my hand. It's called Full Employment in a Free Society by Lord Beveridge. Why is it interesting? 1942, Winston Churchill started to worry about what the world would look like when the war was over. And he said to Beveridge, go away and write for me about what the world would be like. What, what, what are we going to have to create when people come back from war? Remember, women had been working. They'd never worked before. How can we run an economy hot? And here's a great story. He writes in the book that he thought 3% unemployment would be, the, would be the level that you could get the economy to. And in 1960, he's written, a, pro, uh, written a, a new edition. And he says, well, I wrote this and Keynes wrote to me and said, I think 3% is too low. I don't, good luck, let's try it. 
So he says, so in 1960, he writes and says, well, what, did, what happened? And unemployment in the UK between 1948 and 1960 averaged 1.5%. Mm. I mean, so the argument is, well, actually, a lot of this is because these folks are worried about what's going to happen. They try and stop the economy doing well, which would help these people the best. But, mm. you know, full employment in a free society meant, meant workers... Workers had lots of job, good job offers. The unemployed got, off, got offered their jobs back. But in firms that were zombies, they didn't get offered those jobs back. They got offered jobs in new firms, which write the zombies out. And so I think this whole misunderstanding of the labor market, misunderstanding of, of people's well-being, is what's brought this on. And you, mm -hmm. you, know, you better shape up. When we go back to 2018, they raised rates, said they were going to raise rates a lot. So then they had to cut rates like crazy. And two people in the world said this was a really dumb thing that they did, which was Donald Trump and me. Because I said Donald Trump was right. They shouldn't have done that. And so what you do is you make an error, it weakens the economy. You make an error because you don't understand that Bear Stearns is in trouble. You don't understand that the Royal Bank of Scotland and Northern Rock are in trouble. So you allow these banks to fail. But you're never thinking, how are we going to deal with people at the low end? And you get Brexit. And Brexit, as far as I can see, I mean, Adam Posen, who was on the bank after me, we both take the view that um, it, Brexit is an economic disaster. There are no economic benefits from it. The only question is how big are the costs? And yes, it may be about sovereignty, but you can't eat sovereignty. And as the price of Brexit rises, then people become less attracted to it. And now you have a disaster going on where the majority of people are opposed to it. And in all likelihood, it will generate a vote for Scottish independence because the Scots don't want, and if you look, there's new data come out, but what do you think about the government and how they've handled it? Well, in England, it's pretty disastrous. Wales and Scotland think it's much better. So the, the, the views about the Scottish government now are now much better, which means presumably that the vote for independence away from England is, is, now, is now more likely. So you, you, by, by doing bad economic decisions, not thinking about normal people, I mean, an example in Scotland were two things. What the Scottish government did was, first of all, there's bridges in Scotland. There's the fourth road bridge. It used to be a disaster. Lines of traffic. The, the government comes in and says, forget it, we're going to take the tolls off. And then what they did was they said, we're going to actually make it free to come to Scottish universities for people from Scotland. So if you came from England, you paid fees to go to the University of St Andrews, but the Scottish kids didn't have to pay and people really liked it. Right? This, is a, this has a big effect. Um, and if you want to come from England to a Scottish university, you pay. But, you know, so you can, you can see that there are populist things that you can do that ends up with people liking their go. And in the United States, you can see that many of these governors who've done good stuff in the, in the pandemic get voted. I mean, the example is New Hampshire and Vermont. Both, I mean, New Hampshire, where, I, where, where Dartmouth is, we have, we have Democrat senators, Democrat um, um, congressmen. And a, and a Republican uh, governor who's been voted, re, voted back in in a landslide. Same in, same in Vermont. So, so even, even though you have this political divide, if you do smart stuff, the people will come back and, and like you. So I think the linking of the economics and understanding about the, the, the normal person and, and outside of the big city is really where we are. And so the, you know, we the have key a, a is really divide. The key is really to have that individual feel invested into the economy I, and I not to so. feel them feel separated from it. Well, I think, I mean, what a great way to say it. I mean, it, to, to, if, if, if you're left behind, you're not engaged in the economy and you're not engaged in the political process. And in the end, you're going to say, I want this thing burnt down. And that's what yeah, we've been seeing. That's what we've and seen. so if the, consequence, the consequences of not doing that yeah. is this, is this, is this, you know, is this, and it may, it's made the economy vulnerable. I mean, as I go back to the UK, the government literally basically said the, co the cost of the recession was public spending. So now what we're going to do is we're going to close libraries, we're going to close health centres, we're going to close community centres, we're going to close schools, we're going to close local swimming pools. And we're going to close, you know, Meals on Wheels and social centres for the old, because that's what the cause of the Great Recession was. Well, surprise, surprise. A, people don't like it. B, um, you know, you, you end up with a vote for Brexit. And C, you're vulnerable to the pandemic. And as, as, as kind of a counterexample of what you just laid out, if they would have gone to something where you use the libraries and actually give them more funding to help people 
develop skills and do something to become better employees. If you have people, if you give money to the uh, community centers to help people stay connected to exactly. their elders and to their kids, they're still going and, to and, and you could and you could see that there will be public private partnerships yeah and you could encourage firms to be part of this instead yeah. what you did was you closed it down yeah and you had nothing but what you what you could have done was invest in people invest you're in looking at the space. short term but nothing exactly into the long, exactly and then the you have to year. think then you would have to think in every one of these communities would that have made would that have made the impact of the uh, think of public health you yeah. say we don't need to invest in public health let's forget that well, there you go. There's the logic. Well, that was a mistake. Yeah. You, I mean, you know, are you going to invest in clean water? Are you going to invest in good, clean air? Da, 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 da. And in fact, what we're probably going to have to see is very big investments. I mean, the, I mean, the issue we might think about now is what the heck are you going to do about the young? Hmm. And that's a major issue. So, okay, people have furloughed all these zombie firms and so on have put people off, but are they going to hire back young people, the 17-year-old who's just come out of a school in Philadelphia? No. What are they going to do? Well, you're going to have to do something for them. The consequences of your inaction is now going to have a serious consequence because, you know, young people are a problem. Um, that young people go out on the street, and if there's a, if the, uh, if you're unemployed when you're young, that is, has consequences later. So yeah. we may well have to see things like Civilian Conservation Corps. I mean, we've, uh, David Bell, my co-author, and I have called for that in the UK. Um, that may well be where we're going to have to go, and you could think that's how the that's how the environmental stuff will get done. Go plant trees. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what happened in the, in the United States. And three million young men went onto these programs. Actually, the recent papers just show, here's an interesting fact. People went onto the Civilian Conservation Corps. They, were, they did better than others. And in fact, this experiment's now shown that actually they got taller by being, the experiment is what happened to them. Well, they got a better diet, they did work. And actually you can see that these people grew taller whilst on that program so so there are benefits but we are going to have to sort of scrap all of that stuff and start over revalue things right revalue things to favoring uh society and people yeah well yeah. if you don't i mean if i mean go back to give them all ipads good luck with that yeah i mean i mean i mean i remember what they did in paris was they widened the streets and took the cobbles away and they widened the streets so that you couldn't barricade across the streets yeah. and you took away the bricks because now you no longer had something to throw. Well, mm -hmm. now, you, now you're going to give them iPads so that they could throw them at you? Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, it's, uh, it's been an amazing, we've gone way over our time and oh, I, really, I really appreciate your, your <laughs> spending so much time. And, and honestly, it's Dartmouth College. Dartmouth College. You okay. said university. I did, I did. <laughs> but... Um, you know, I honestly feel like there's 50 other things we could talk about. You so we'll if, do it's, day. if it's okay, I'll, I'll uh, check back in a month or two and we'll, uh, we'll chat. Yeah, again. we do. Good to chat, my friend. But I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And I'll sure. talk to you soon. Thanks, Yes, Dan. sir. Bye. We good?